Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about track by track of music nostalgia. After the serious subject matter and serious length of the last Inappropriate Conversations show, I felt like I needed to lighten it up, and I've been meaning to talk about this for quite some time because it's been a bit of a passion of mine this year. People who follow me personally on Facebook have seen this before, and I recently moved the exercise that I call Track by Track away from Facebook and onto Inappropriate Conversations. In fact, if you wanted to follow along and see some examples of what I'm talking about, You'll find it at www.inappropriateconversations.org slash p slash track hyphen by hyphen track. Basically, it's the uh, pages at the top of the website where you can find the about page and the page for Christianity 101 and Walk the Earth. You can also find track by track there. But before I sort of read the standard blurb that I've used to explain what this exercise is all about... Let me first try to paint a bit of a picture, sort of tell it like it's a story. Now imagine that you are teaching a modern recorded music class in some sort of a university-type setting or, or even in an outreach extension type of a setting for coursework. I mean modern in this case in the sense of being not postmodern, being older than postmodern, because I'm talking about the era of the album and... It goes so without saying on this particular episode that I'll just put it out there. I kind of miss the album. And I don't know whether it's because I miss vinyl, per se. I actually am beginning to miss the CD. People today buy their songs as songs rather than as albums. So any more of you think somebody's going to go to iTunes or uh, eMusic or somewhere else and, and buy some music, it seems like it's relatively less common than it had been before, that they would just buy the entire new release by an artist and let the chips fall where they may in terms of whether they like all the songs or not. I'm not judging. This exercise assumes you're not going to like all the songs. But it also assumes that one of the most important ways, at least in my lifetime, of understanding music, not just rock music, but perhaps mainly rock music, this is also applicable to jazz as well and folk, but One of the ways we understand music, at least when I was growing up, we'd understood it in the context of the album. I've mentioned before, when I was a kid and just getting into music and learning a lot about it, the rock and roll radio station in my uh, market had something that they put originally on Friday night. Uh, Later, they would move it to Sunday and rebrand it. But on Friday night, they called it the Ultimate Six Pack. And what they would do was play six albums straight through, taking a commercial break where the album sides would kick in and... Uh, get probably the right amount of commercials in, just in larger blocks, right in the middle of 20, 25 minutes of solid music. But for people like me, who are just beginning to learn things about bands like uh, Jethro Tull and Spirit, or, or even the bigger name bands like the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Beatles, it was nice to actually have the ability to hear an entire album on the radio. And I won't lie, there were times when I would record what was being played on the radio, Because with the Ultimate Six Pack beginning at around 10 o'clock at night on a Friday night, there were times when I knew, if it had been a football game Friday, for example, that I might not be able to stay awake, having been 
you know, up at five o'clock in the morning or earlier to go to school and to, to do a marching band practice before school. And then, of course, after school, go back and, and participate in game day activities that I might, in high school anyway, have not been able to stay up all the way to 2.30 or 3 in the morning when the ultimate six-pack would come to a close. And frankly, at the times, and it's been years since I've done this, but in the times when I've dredged up any of those old cassettes, what I actually enjoy as much as anything is actually those commercial breaks. Instead of the commercials being a problem, the commercials are actually a bit of a source of nostalgia as well. But this is how I first learned about bands that I've ultimately turned around and bought on vinyl LP or on compact disc. I don't believe for one second that the record labels were in any way harmed by a radio station playing an album in its entirety. If anything, it created, for me, a a groundswell of interest and respect for those artists. But let's say we're back in this class again, that, that a modern recorded music class is being taught. And perhaps the first ep- exercise for the students is to just list out your favorite artists, name your favorite artists, put them on paper, put them on a tablet, for example. And they have to be the ones that you know best. So whether it's a solo artist or a group, they need to be ones where you as a student understand the artist uh, at that kind of level to where... It's okay, I guess, if one student has too many. In fact, it's probably great if they have a whole bunch of bands that they could name. But you're going to want to name the ones that you know at the album level. This doesn't mean that you would have to own them all, or even anything like owning them all. But you need to understand their musical output in those kind of chunks, if not album by name, because there's a way to get around not really understanding which songs come from which album. I'll get to that in a second. But it's more about understanding the years or even the eras of a band or perhaps even how the lineup changed over time, whether it's the same musicians who matured in their musicianship or whether there's actually lineup changes to be taken into account. For the most part, if you understand a band has had a a change in lineup and this is where they got the new drummer or this is where the bass player quit and they replaced the bass player, your introduction to that is going to be in the form of an album. The bass player may have been changed up and may have been recording and even touring with the group for weeks or months or who knows, in some cases, maybe even years. But as a fan living in the heart of the heart of the country, in a flyover state, as was the case for me, you might not actually be aware of it. You certainly aren't going to hear any of that output of how the band might be changed by a tweak in musicianships or a lineup adjustment until a new album comes out. So that's sort of the the background, the idea of what are we trying to accomplish by looking at things track by track. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to jump over to the uh, website at www.inappropriateconversations.org and wander through some of the groups that I've already done this with. Give it a little slightly better explanation because if you've just started with a whole bunch of artists where you know them well enough that you understand them at the artist, the album level, and you've sort of sorted them by the ones you know the very best. And If you're there, then the next step is this track-by-track thing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how I do it, some of the bands I've already done it for, kind of what the results were there, because I really made a point to try to do this for a lot of different drummers who've been musicians. Not all of them, because over the course of four or five years now, I've named a lot of musicians as different drummers. But I did take a a bias in that direction to say, you know, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do this for the Violent Femmes for example, because Gordon Gano was the very first different drummer. And then we'll actually do a couple. Now, I'm going to say do them live, but it may not be live. I feel like the uh, previous Inappropriate Conversation, 157, Letting Justice Roll, went pretty well. 
kind of recorded on the fly. I didn't have to do any sort of sound editings or cleanups. As far as I can tell, it didn't look like I'd popped too many peas in a particularly bad way or uh, needed to uh, fade something out because of a cough. There was a phone ring. I just left it in. But I think that doing a track-by-track listing live, it might not exactly work. I, I would have to depend heavily on the speed of my internet to make that go well. But I'll talk through how it's done, and if you're interested, you can play along. But first, what does the website have to say about this concept of track-by-track? Track-by-track for recording artists. Harkening back to an era when albums, or even CDs, framed our understanding of their work. The idea is to pick the best first track from an artist, then the second track and third track across all their work. The end result wouldn't be the best CD from that artist, but instead an interesting combination of bests by song position on CD or album or tape. You get the idea. And here are a few examples. For the track-by-track of Violent Femmes, again, Gordon Gano being our very first different drummer, I looked at number one being Blister in the Sun, Number two, No Killing. Number three, Dating Days. Number four, Add It Up. And number five, my favorite, I know it's true, but I'm sorry to say. Number six, Hallowed Ground. Number seven, Rejoice and Be Happy. The only entry from that latter period in the band's history. Number eight, I Held Her in My Arms. Number nine, Telephone Book. Number ten, Good Friend. Number eleven, Cold Canyon. Number 12, cheating just a little a bit uh, to put Gimme the Car in there because Gimme the Car is coming off of a bonus disc or perhaps in this case the live recording. And number 13, I'm free. Generally speaking, the track-by-track idea is to avoid what I would describe as compilation recordings. So avoiding the, the rarities, the best-of collections, the live albums, and all that. To try to go more purely with studio releases. But what I'm saying by putting this together as I have is that the first song from the very first Violent Femmes album, Blister in the Sun, is the best first song on any other Violent Femmes recording. So I may have had to weigh Blister in the Sun versus American Music, which was the first song on Why Do Birds Sing, to decide which one I liked better, and so on and so forth. By far the easiest first for me was The Fall. Uh, Mansion is the first track on This Nation's Saving Grace. It's instrumental, and it's easily my favorite instrumental track by The Fall. The one that I found particularly challenging, though, at least from a very first song perspective, was The Rolling Stones. And this surprised me. I think if we were looking at a conflict between uh, The Rolling Stones, perhaps, and The Beatles, that classic, which one are you, The Beatles or The Stones, I would not have picked myself as being somebody who was that sympathetic to The Rolling Stones that I like them, I respect them, perhaps have always held them off at a bit of an arm's distance, and given the choice between the Beatles and the Stones, I'd pick Led Zeppelin. Okay, I'd pick the Beatles. But that doesn't mean I'm the biggest Beatles fan in the world either. It's just I prefer the Beatles to the Stones. But here's what got me. When I was going through this track-by-track approach, I think that I had severely underestimated just exactly how good the Rolling Stones as a group were at starting off albums. Kind of a, a weird thing to be thinking about, perhaps, but something that I think as a music lover should have been obvious to me long before doing this exercise. But if you'd asked me, of all the classic rock bands, who has the best, consistently best, first track approach to making a recording, I don't know that I would have guessed the Rolling Stones. But I really found it incredibly difficult when I did my track-by-track track of the Stones, which I'll share here in just a second, 
I picked Sympathy for the Devil, but that meant that I had to eliminate songs like Gimme Shelter and Brown Sugar. And I'm not exactly sure that I made the wise decision there, that on a different day going through this exercise, I might have made a completely different choice. I'm going to talk about that. I'll use the Rolling Stones here as an example, kind of share what I did with them. And then I'm going to walk through a couple that I intended to do today. Uh, one I did right before in preparing for the show. And the other ones I'm going to do on the show. But the track by track of Rolling Stones, I got to go with somebody like the Stones because I got to go with somebody who's popular enough that most of us should know their songs. Meaning you're going to know where I veered off the beaten track and done something perhaps unusual or unexpected with my choices. But I also didn't want to do the Beatles because when I kind of did track by track of the Beatles, I ended up with 22 tracks because of the length of some of the albums, the number of tracks on some of their albums, especially the ones that have been uh, reissued with bonus material on them, but it's still the studio recording. The Who also ended up with 14 tracks from them. But the Rolling Stones fits into a nice, tidy 11 or 12. You'll see what I mean in a minute by the or 12. Track one, Sympathy for the Devil. Track two, Mixed Emotions, surprised me there as well. I wasn't expecting that era of the Stones to put very many songs on this list. I'm more old school than that. Track three, Wild Horses. Track four, the title track to Some Girls. Track five, Tumbling Dice. Uh, Number six, She's a Rainbow. Number seven, Get Off My Cloud. Uh, Kicking off a little old school section for the Stones, because number eight is 19th Nervous Breakdown. Number nine, Dead Flowers, might be my favorite Rolling Stones song. And it's funny, you're going through this exercise, you get to track number nine and the album Sticky Fingers, and you you suddenly know... And I'm done. No other song that's number nine can get in here. Uh, it's what happened to me with number one, where I, I ended up picking Sympathy for the Devil, but then looking back on Brown Sugar and, and Gimme Shelter, I'm wondering, wow, that's, that's brutal. Number 10, Shattered. Number 11, Waiting on a Friend. Good way to end an album. And I realized that uh, I Can't Get No Satisfaction got squeezed out here as well, but I found it as the 12th track on a live album, broke my semi-serious rule, and, and dropped it off as a result. Uh, so dropped it in as a result. And said, all right, I can, I can do an extra track that way. That probably works. So as I go back, maybe look one more. Because I mentioned earlier that deep down I probably in that era of classic rock prefer Led Zeppelin to any of the other you know, greats of that era. So quickly just to do the Led Zeppelin list. I won't even give the numbers. I'll just rattle them off in order. Immigrant Song, What Is and What Should Never Be. Fool in the Rain. Notice that what is and what should ever be squeezed out rock and roll, by the way. Um, Stairway to Heaven, Misty Mountain Hop, Cashmere, Ramble On, That's the Way, and Bring It On Home. Again, the purpose of this exercise is not to put together a best of album or even a better of album or even a good of album, uh, just to butcher grammar a little further. It's to make the choices to say, if I if I had to do... If I had to do it where I could only pick one track one, one of track two, one of track three, one of track four, how would it play out? How would it line up? So how does this exercise work? The first thing you need to do is go to a place where you can actually see albums as they were released and with the tracks listed numerically is ideal. That way it's easy to see where you're at when you're looking for you know, number track number eight on an album. It's easier to find. You don't have to do any counting. And that can be done anywhere. I mean, Amazon could do it. Best Buy's website could probably do it. I choose instead to go to allmusic.com. At www.allmusic.com, there's a search bar. You can key in the artist. And then you can go to the tab for discography. And that is going to, by order of year, by order of release, put the albums together. 
It isn't perfect. Uh, in fact, my mobile app from the All Media Guide, which is where you can find all music, uh, the All Music pages, has been malfunctioning a little bit lately. And the, discog- the discography section tries to weed out the compilations, and good on them for that. But live albums will still creep in. And uh, there's some good reasons for that. Every now and then a live album will come out that's really just a best of live, should be viewed as a compilation recording. But sometimes the live album is actually designed and meant to actually introduce a lot of new music that hasn't been previously released. And you'll see those at allmusic.com creep into the regular albums list. I usually just try to skip over them, kind of weed them out that way. The website used to be better in that it used to have a next button, where if you would click on the first album, you could then just jump chronologically forward by hitting a next button. Somewhere along the way when the website was updated, that functionality is either gone, or I haven't really sorted out how to do it to move within. But it's just as easy to you know scan back and forth, you know, to... Uh, to see the album, go to the back bar, go to the next album, and so forth. And So with that in mind, uh, to prepare for the show, I went and decided that maybe I should do The Cars. Now, a couple reasons why I chose to do The Cars. First, uh, my friend Tony Pucci has reminded me a few times that I probably am, have underestimated them. That when, when you talk about bands, especially bands in high school, like the 80s bands and all that, I probably hold The Cars in higher esteem than I let myself know I hold them in high esteem. And I also listened to a podcast called Stuck in the 80s, and they've, in the past year or so, done some stuff with Cars albums, both the recently released one, but also some nostalgia stuff that really kind of brings it back. So I thought that I would take a quick look at the Cars. And what I ended up with was the uh, the first song, Let's Go. Now, to me, Let's Go, edging out Good Times Roll from the first Cars album, perhaps a controversial decision for that reason, but... This is a very personal exercise. My relationship with the cars goes back to the summer between my junior and senior year in college, I believe it was, when I was listening to the I listened to the album really for the first time all the way through. The first album by the cars that I heard end to end. And at this time there had only been the two albums that had come out. Uh, I was on our drive back from university where we'd spent what I would describe as a long weekend or maybe a week long uh, doing university-level work while in high school, sort of a explorer-type program. And the two guys that I was with, one of them was driving, was huge Cars fan, loved the, the newer album, the Candio album. And I was uh, too ill to argue, frankly. I was I caught a cold at some point near the end of this week, and I was just basically bundled up in the back seat with a blanket on me, trying not to cough on anybody, and listening to the Candio album by the Cars at least three times through on that drive back. So for me, I've got a soft spot for it. It's kind of my entry point for the cars. And for that for that reason in particular, Let's Go kicks off my track-by-track track list from the cars. I do veer back to that first album, though, for My Best Friend's Girl to pick that one up and kind of let that first album represent appropriately. But the third track is where I had the most trouble with the cars. It's all I can do is among, if not my favorite, Cars song. But when you think about Track number three, It's All I Can Do, sort of a a mid-tempo weeper of sorts, bumping out just what I needed. And I can see a lot of people, Cars fans in particular, you know, kind of breaking ways with me right now over that decision. I'll grant that it's controversial. That track three also is the one that has um, magic on it, on one album, and I'm not the one. So track three seems to be the sweet spot for the Cars. I went with It's All I Can Do. Now, I'm not throwing a bone 
to the Cars' third album by putting Don't Tell Me No in the fourth track song position. Uh, For a lot of people, Panorama, not the strongest album by the band. And I would agree, it's not my favorite by them either. But Don't Tell Me No is one of my favorite Cars songs. Never really was a single for them, but it's a single for me as far as it goes. Rounding out the Cars, number five I picked Don't Just Stop. Again, just a nod of a hat to the early album. You Might Think, number six. Bye Bye Love, number seven. Moving in Stereo, number eight. Running to You, number nine. Up and Down, ten. I believe that's another track from Panorama, kind of an underregarded album. And number 11, The Dangerous Type. So bookending this entire thing with a focus on Candio. So my hope is this gives a feel for kind of what I mean by this track-by-track idea. And how it plays out that sometimes you do it, and maybe you'd like to include both Magic and I'm Not the One and Just What I Needed and It's All I Can Do. You could make a whole album side of track number three is across all the albums the Cars ever made. And to me, that's the part that's interesting about it. Because back then, even as late as the 80s, and certainly in the 70s, there was a certain craft to putting an album together. Bands would actually have probably knocked down, drag out fights over decisions related to it. Certainly there were probably times when the group would just get into a studio, record a bunch of tracks, let the producer and the record company sort it out. But just as often, no, the sequence of an album would be something that would be very important. And it's revealing in some ways that maybe for the Cars, the middle of side one was somehow a place where they were putting a song that they thought might have significant play as the second single, because that tended to be the way it would play out for them, either that second single or that third single really, really taking off. So one more thing I want to do before I walk through a couple of these kind of live. And in the process of trying to decide how to do this, I needed to pick groups that didn't have just a gigantic catalog because that's what made it tough. With the Rolling Stones, probably took me the better part of 30 or 45 minutes just to go through every album that they had that wasn't a compilation. And in the case of the Beatles, it wasn't so much that there was trouble with how many albums there were, as just how many songs on each album I was finding. And trying to make judgments about what was the original Uh, release lineup for an album versus how many things were just bonus tracks and extras. I picked a couple of bands where you're basically looking at roughly a a six-pack worth of choices and groups that were uh, classic enough in the classic rock era that you're not necessarily looking at 23, 24 tracks on any given CD either. Because at some point when you're putting this together, it's not just that if, if the band has made one CD with 18 songs on it, that doesn't necessarily mean the tracks 14 through 18 are all going to come from that one CD. If I don't like any of those songs enough to put them on a compilation or a mixtape, for example, I'm not going to go to 18 on them. That's why each one of these are of different lengths. But one of the groups that I did the most with, one of the artists that I spent the most time with, got up to 15 tracks, was Elvis Costello. And if you've listened to the last Inappropriate Conversations from the end of the year, the the Boxing Day episode, my esteem for Elvis Costello was probably obvious then. And I quoted a lot of lyrics and shared a lot of stories about lyrics in that different drummer segment. And here you're going to hear some of those same songs mentioned in this track-by-track example, as you might imagine. Because if I like the song enough to know its lyrics by heart, I probably like the song enough that I would pick it in a track-by-track exercise. And sure enough, there'll be a lot of songs here that I've quoted before. The Other Side of Summer, beating out all the other first tracks. Followed by Every Day I Write the Book, The Beat, Veronica, Allison. Costello as an artist has done a better job than most at successfully naming really good songs after women's names. 
Um, I tend to see a, a song named after a woman and think, all right, the, there's a crutch being used here. There's a songwriting device. But Costello did it pretty well. Uh, number six, shipbuilding. Beginning to get one of those where this is no contest. I know what number six is, and there's no other number six from any other Elvis Costello CD that's going to take that spot away from shipbuilding. Whereas the next two were a little bit up for grabs. The Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes and Less Than Zero, tracks seven and eight from Elvis Costello's first album, could have been bumped by other things. It just didn't happen. Number nine, Human Hands, was the next one that locked in. Perhaps my favorite Elvis Costello song, Nothing Was Going to Take That Spot Away. Followed by London's Brilliant Parade, Little Savage, Two Little Hitlers, Peace in Our Time. I was tempted to stop there. It's a great way to end a track-by-track album. But I went back to that Imperial Bedroom recording, and I just couldn't argue. You Little Fool and Town Crier both belonged. So this is the track-by-track exercise. You can find it as one of the pages on the top at the website, uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org. There are dozens of these that I've done, and I'll walk you through, after a quick break, exactly how I do it. Hi, this is Will Tristrummer for Those About to Rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplysyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but, you know, we try our best. I actually have no idea how much interest there will be in this. It could be just surely nostalgic self-indulgence for me. But as I mentioned early on, uh, I needed a break from the, the grind of perhaps the more serious episode that I just did. And this is something that I personally find relaxing, to be honest. So what I do is I grab a quick Excel spreadsheet, and uh, on column A, I just list out some track numbers. And on column B, I leave it blank, because as I go through, the song that I put next to track number one is going to change and evolve over time. The two bands I've chosen to sort of do this on the show, uh, so I haven't even looked at these yet, uh, The Doors and Dire Straits. So I'm going to hit an artist in the D section of the alphabet on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean and start with the older of the two, with The Doors. So I've gone to www.allmusic.com, I've looked up The Doors, clicked on their discography, and I've gone to their very first album. And from the very first album, there are tracks here, which I can, I can type in. Again, I don't start by just saying, well, the first album, I've got to put in all the names. If I don't really like the song all that much, I'm not going to type its name in. But I don't have any issue with Break On Through to the Other Side, except maybe in the back of my mind, the possibility that I'm already aware that some other first song is going to take its place. So instead, I'm going to skip Break On Through, and on track number two, I'm going to type Soul Kitchen. Soul Kitchen is probably my favorite song from this first debut album by The Doors, so it's worth writing down. I also don't have any problem with The Crystal Ship. I think it's going to get replaced by something else, but I'll put it in there as my initial number three entry, um, because, again, it's good enough. I like it well enough. I'm going to skip down to number six. Number six on that debut album is Light My Fire. Again, it's a big hit. I don't expect it to make it all the way through. I'll be very surprised if... Light My Fire survives this process. I vaguely have a recollection that maybe the song Hyacinth House from L.A. Woman is a number six track, and that's going to beat Light My Fire for me every time. And finally, as you'll note, maybe I'm not the biggest fan of the debut album by The Doors. I've typed the end in as number 11, meaning that for 11 tracks on the album, there's only four of them that I'm even considering from a track-by-track perspective as allowing to be part of this process. 
So I scrolled backwards to the discography and jumped into the second album by them, Strange Days. So Strange Days by The Doors. Track number two, Your Lost Little Girl. Kind of a skeevy song a little bit, but I like it. But I don't like it as much as Soul Kitchen, so it's not getting in. The Crystal Ship got in from the debut, but it's going to lose out to Love Me Two Times. Uh, that'll be my track number three for now, as I, as I work my way through the album. The Doors are a very odd band, so there's going to be opportunities here for me to put things down, which, if they survive, would be a huge surprise, right? Horse Latitudes, sort of a bizarre performance art number, preceding Moonlight Drive as track number six. I'm going to keep Horse Latitudes in place, uh, and I'm going to skip number six, Moonlight Drive, and instead allow that to remain Light My Fire for the time being. But uh, so if we if Horse Latitude survives from number five, that'll be a big surprise. I don't have an entry for number seven. People are strange makes sense there. It's a short little number. I don't think it's that significant, but it's certainly fun. And when the music's over is number ten. Uh, I like when the music's over enough that if I don't get a better number eleven, I might drop the end and just keep when the music's over as the last track. So just because I currently have eleven here. Because the length of the first album was 11, and there was a pretty good song there at the end, number 11. Uh, Right now, I think I kind of prefer When the Music's Over to the end, truth be known. So I'm going to scroll back, go to the third album by The Doors, and as you can see, this is beginning to fill in. I've got vacancies on number 4, 8, 9, and 1, so we'll see what happens as we begin to fill in the blanks there. The third album, Waiting for the Sun... Uh, again, if just going off memory, I think a little bit of a mixed bag, but it's a mixed bag that I know is going to put a song in here that I'm going to lock in place. So let's start right up front with Hello, I Love You. It's uh, track number one. I don't have a track number one, so this one's kind of a, kind of a no-brainer. Uh, track number two, Staying Put. Track number four, I can put Summer's Almost Gone in here for now. Uh, again, I don't think it's going to survive as I get deeper into their catalog, but it's good enough for now. Number five was a weird one, as we'll remember. Horse Latitudes I had in from People Are Strange. It's not going to get replaced by Wintertime Love, so it's okay. And now making a decision between Light My Fire and The Unknown Soldier. That's the first time I've really had a tough call to make. Uh, I'm going to stick with Light My Fire for now as number six. People Are Strange versus Spanish Caravan. That's a tough one, too. And I'm going to jump all the way down to the end of the album and ask myself whether I prefer five to one to the end. And, uh... That's difficult. I don't know the answer to it. I'm going to stay with the end for now. Because I know I'm going to lose when the music's over. Now that's odd, right? I talked about it being a great way to end a Doors um, track-by-track CD of sorts. But um, Yes, the River Knows is one of those Doors tracks that I really love. It's very unsung. Perfect kind of song for a track-by-track listing. And I just don't think there's any way it's going to get replaced. It's my number 10 bumping when the music's over off, which is surprising, and that puts it in such a... It's got a collateral behind it now. So some other track that could bump Yes, the the River Knows off my list is actually going to be not just better than Yes, the River Knows, but better than when the music's over. Uh, It sort of puts some weight behind this number 10. I think I'm locked in on my number 10. And because I've done enough damage with the Waiting for the Sun album... I'm going to leave it as it is. Leave 5 to 1 off. Keep the end right now as my track number 11. And now we get to the Soft Parade. Soft Parade's got some of my favorite Doors songs on at least one. So I thought earlier, maybe my number one track will be Tell All the People from 
the soft parade, but I don't think so. I don't think it's capable of bumping off Hello, I Love You. So we'll see what happens there. No, now that you get to this stage here, it gets a little bit easier to sort of come in and say, I, I know that I've made some decisions. Now I'm just looking for certain things. And I'm going to go all the way to the end of the soft parade, where the last two tracks are Wishful Sinful and The Soft Parade. And I'm going to put them both in. Uh, that's where I was expecting to, to see this. I feel a little bit soft about number eight there with Wishful Sinful, but Soft Parade, the title track, track number nine on this list, is probably going to stick around and stay there. Wild Child from number uh, track number six, also worth considering. Is that good enough to bump Light My Fire? I don't think I'm going to spend any time on that right now. I'm going to leave the Soft Parade with just those two entries. Touch Me was the big single from this album. It's just not, not, I don't like it as much as Soul Kitchen from that very first album. I'm going to skip Absolutely Live for now and only come back to it if I think that I need it. It's one of those live albums that the allmusic.com website lists not under the compilations, but under uh, with the rest of the studio albums. I think in part it's because the Absolutely Live album introduces tracks that were only available through that live album. So there's a lot of new material there. And I'm also just going to, heads up, I'm going to skip all the stuff without Jim Morrison on it. So I have two studio albums left, and then perhaps I'll look back at that 1970 live album. But first I'm going to go to Morrison Hotel, which will be the next studio album on the list. And this is where we're going to get an interesting decision. So Roadhouse Blues is here. Does Roadhouse Blues replace Hello, I Love You? I think it does. So my new track number one is Roadhouse Blues. Hello, I Love You has been bumped off the list. Uh... Peace Frog is number four. Blue Sunday is number five. Ship of Fools is number six. This is a great four, five, six combo. So if I go to number four, where I currently have Summer's Almost Gone from Waiting for the Sun, that's gone. Peace Frog is going to take its place. At number five, it was fun. It was amusing having Horse Latitudes on here for a while, but Blue Sunday, which to me is kind of the uh, the bookend, two for Tuesday track to go along with Peace Frog. It makes the cut. And all along I thought Light My Fire was going to go, and it does. Uh, Ship of Fools is going to take Light My Fire's place. Uh, We'll see if Ship of Fools can hold on to its spot. The second side of the album, Morrison Hotel, not quite as strong. Uh, Land Ho is good, The Spy is good. So let's take a look at The Spy, number eight. Um, Actually, number seven, Land Ho. People are strange, Land Ho. Interesting. No, Wishful Sinful's going. It's going to be replaced by The Spy. And I just don't think I'm going to replace anything else here because I feel that strongly about the soft parade and, yes, the river knows. And I'm not going to put Maggie McGill in place of the end, which takes me to the last one of these Doors recordings from a track-by-track perspective. We get to L.A. Woman. And from the start, I was sort of thinking L.A. Woman was going to give me a song for number one and a song for number six. And I was wrong about that. Uh, the Changeling doesn't doesn't make the cut. i got to make a choice between Love Her Madly and Soul Kitchen. And for now, I'm going to keep Soul Kitchen in place. Uh, L.A. Woman, track number five. Title track to L.A. Woman. Does that replace Blue Sunday? I suspect it does. So I'm taking Blue Sunday off, putting L.A. Woman there as the song right after Peace Frog. And I mentioned from the start that Hyacinth House was going to make this cut. So people are strange. Number seven leaves. Hyacinth House comes in. Perhaps my favorite song from this particular album, anyway. There is no number 11 
on L.A. Woman. It ends with number 10. The 10th track is Writers on the Storm. Big signal for the band. You can understand why somebody might think it would make the entry. But again, is Writers on the Storm going to replace Yes, the River Knows? For a lot of people, probably yes. For me, certainly not. And it's not going to replace Yes, the River Knows in part because I don't think I'd put Writers on the Storm on this list in place of When the Music's Over. And Yes, the River Knows already bumped off When the Music's Over. What happened track by track from the album? So just going from memory here, Roadhouse Blues was the first one. So that's, that's album five. So my listings are album five, one, two, five, six, five, six, five, four, two, uh, number three, and then number one. So every album I think represented to one degree or another, but some only to the, the smallest degree. Ended up with Roadhouse Blues, Soul Kitchen, Love Me Two Times, Peace Frog, L.A. Woman, Ship of Fools, Hyacinth House, The Spy, The Soft Parade, Yes, The River Knows, and The End. That's a track-by-track listing of The Doors. And I'm going to take a quick pause and actually post this on the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations, just to put a hint that the track-by-track concept, which was a personal exercise of mine, has now moved onto the Inappropriate Conversations page and is coming soon to a podcast near you. Hello, Dave Prouse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! I paused because I wanted to post that list out on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. Because when I do this, I often just use the same worksheet over and over again. It's organized in a way that I find convenient, both for me to pick songs and for me to post online as I see fit. And I think the interesting thing is, if you looked at this from a classroom exercise, tedious, boring, annoying, thought-provoking, interesting, revealing? I don't know. Uh, Probably somebody else would have to weigh in on that. To me, I've learned a little bit about myself and a little bit about about these artists. And I've been able to rediscover some things that I love that I perhaps haven't been paying attention to lately by looking at the music in this particular way. So let's dive back in, jump across the ocean, and do the Dire Straits in in a very similar way. So from their very first self-titled album, um, this one, unlike The Doors, where I'm lukewarm toward it, I really like this one. So I'm going to go with Down to the Waterline right up front and... uh, very happy to have that listed. Going to go with Six Blade Knife as the fourth track. Like that. Obviously, uh, Sultans of Swing and in the gallery, when you get to track six and seven, you're in very good shape there. And that may be enough for now from this first album. There's no rule that says you can't go back if you need to. And uh, so if I need to fill in more with, with uh, Lions or Wild West End, I can. But for now, I'm going to go forward into the album Communique. Communique is going to be one of those where it's easy for me. It's not really one of my favorites. So there's a couple tracks I'm looking for. If I find them and can slot them in, I will. Uh, track number five, Lady Writer. I've got an open spot there, so that's easy enough. Um, the other one I'm looking for is Once Upon a Time in the West. So now I've, right up front, I've got a decision to make in terms of track one. Is it Once Upon a Time from the West or is it Down to the Waterline? I think Down to, down to the Waterline has got to survive. 
Some people like Portobello Bella. I, not for me. I think the the other one for me that I would take here is the title track Communique, which would have to take the place of Six Blade Knife, which for now I'm going to do. So there's a couple tracks here from Communique. I still have three tracks from that debut self-titled album, including their biggest hit of all time, Sultans of Swing. And we'll move forward to my favorite Dire Straits album, Making Movies. So this is going to be tough. I haven't invested too much into the decision about what's track number one and two because I know that I'm just going to completely replace them. Tunnel of Love, among my favorite Dire Straits songs. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, um, the next one. Uh, And because I don't have anything on track three, uh, I'll put Skate Away on there for now. I don't know how well that's going to survive as we proceed, but that's the entire first, the first side of the album in its entirety. There it is. The other one I love from uh, this album, uh, especially side two, my favorite is Hand in Hand, number five. So Lady Writer from the Communique album got on here, and now it's immediately gone. And there is the third Dire Straits album, very well represented, as I would have suspected from the start if you'd asked me, in making movies. I'm going to go to Love Over Gold just to sneak a peek here because this is one where I don't know that I'm going to have much to do with it. Telegraph Road could make the cut, so could Private Investigations, but they're not going to replace Tracks 1 and 2. They're not going to take anything away from the Making Movies album. And Love Over Gold, I'm going to leave Communique in place. I don't want Communique to leave this listing entirely at this stage. So for now, I'm going to skip Love Over Gold and the live album and go to Brothers in Arms. And because I'm not that big of a Dire Straits fan, this might be the last point that I'm making entries. So once again, here we are. Um, An album that starts with three strong tracks, So Far Away, not going to replace Tunnel of Love. Money for Nothing is not going to replace Romeo and Juliet. But Walk of Life will replace Skate Away. So Skate Away was not not on there for very long. I wasn't sure how long it would last, to be honest. And as I look at the rest of this album, maybe number nine, Brothers in Arms, could make... Could make the cut. Um, I'll put it down there, down there for now. One World, no, I'm going to skip that. And just take a quick look at the next album, the last album I'm going to consider from Dire Straits, I believe. Because I'm not familiar with these last two albums all that well. So something would really have to jump out at me to qualify, and I'm just not seeing it. So I know I have a gap here for track number eight. So I need to go backward and take a look at the first two albums again and ask myself the question, or even the first three albums, is there a track number eight that I ignored that I should have considered? And obviously not on Tunnel of Love. It only has seven tracks, three on side one, four on side two. Communique, track number eight. The entry from that one would have been Single-Handed Sailor. No, I think I now know that I'm going to go be going back to the debut album, picking up a song that could have made the cut from the very start and didn't, and put in Wild West End meaning that there won't be a 10th or 11th entry, despite the fact that the Dire Straits have uh, albums that have more than nine songs on them. Because clearly I just don't feel that strongly about the Dire Straits. I feel strongly about the album making movies. (laughs) The rest is filling in the gap. Here are the songs that I chose. Tunnel of Love, Romeo and Juliet, Walk of Life, Communique, Hand in Hand, Sultans of Swing, In the Gallery, Wild West End, and Brothers in Arms. It's enough to give you an example of what it means to do this sort of track-by-track selection. If you go to the website at inappropriateconversations.org, there is a ton of bands that that I've done this for and posted online. In addition to the ones I've already mentioned, Chris Rice, Garth Brooks, Holly Cole, 
Black Sabbath, with a focus on the original Ozzy lineup of Black Sabbath, Dead Kennedys, The Moody Blues, Sophie B. Hawkins, The Boomtown Rats, The Jam, The Residents, Jethro Tull, Yes, Todd Snyder, XTC, DC Talk, Pink Floyd, The Alan Parsons Project, uh, going back to the very first album I ever bought, as a matter of fact, Deaf School, Bob Dylan, several incarnations of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young in different combinations, that whole era of rock history, Maria McKee, uh, her period after Lone Justice, Laurie Anderson, Third Day, Joni Mitchell, The Cure, Sounds of Blackness, Flipper, Van Morrison, Jars of Clay, Don Ellis, Al Stewart, and our different drummer this week, Brian Eno. Brian Peter George St. John LeBaptiste de La Salle Eno. Brian Eno. Or in some cases, simply Eno. RDI. Royal Designers for Industry. A distinction established by the British Royal Society of the Arts. That's a mouthful. Reminds me a little bit of the Dana Gillespie entry or the John Peel entry in recent different drummers. And in this case, I've got no question in my mind that the the bombast of the name of Brian Eno, he actually lives up to it. This is somebody for me who, on the one hand, I know changed the music I listened to and changed the way I listened to music. On the other hand, I have a very difficult time recalling when I first heard Eno and what Eno track was the first one that I put into my collection. This is not like me. I've got a frighteningly good memory. As I'm going through this track-by-track track album exercise I described in the, in the opening segment, I can and sometimes even remember looking at the vinyl. I know what the circular art looked like where the hole in the spindle goes through. I, I know these albums that intimately. And yet with Brian Eno, I don't have much of a recollection. Was this among the tracks that was given to me by a friend when I was a freshman in college? The same person who introduced me to XTC and The Jam? Maybe. Or did I just read about him in Esquire magazine as a freshman in college, or maybe the summer before my freshman year in college, and just pick it up? Or maybe did I find music for films in a dollar bin and just bought it on a lark? And that was my first introduction. I honestly don't recall. I do know that my favorite of the vocal works of the early period of Eno was the Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy album, and Burning Airlines Give You So Much More is one of those songs where I, you know, I, to me when I think Eno, I go back to that. But Eno is actually very difficult to categorize, very difficult to describe, and there's almost nothing you can do that doesn't limit or pigeonhole him in some ways because of the variety of his contributions to music and the interesting combinations of things he's done throughout his career. He was in every way a game changer. I disagree with the statement in the Esquire article that I read back in, call it 1982, Eno is God. From my perspective, I don't believe Eno is God. But you know what? Eno's got a pretty, a pretty good set of credentials. If you've got to pick something close from a musical perspective, that's not a bad way to go. 
from the Wikipedia page, just starting off with Eno as producer and discussing this notion of associated acts. So if you think of Brian Eno, who is he connected with in some meaningful way? Roxy Music, David Bowie, Coldplay, Talking Heads, Robert Fripp, Cluster, Devo, U2, David Byrne, Robert Wyatt, 801, Genesis, and more, including some musical experiments that I think remind me a little bit of previous different drummers, like Steve Reich. Eno is described this way, an English musician, composer, record producer, singer, and visual artist, known as one of the principal innovators of ambient music. He was a student of Roy Ascot and his ground course at Ipswich Civic College, He then studied at Colchester Institute of Art in Essex, England, taking inspiration from minimalist painting. During his time on the art course at the Institute, he also gained experience playing and making music through teaching sessions held in an adjunct music school. He joined the band Roxy Music as a synthesizer player in the early 1970s. Roxy's success in glam rock came quickly, but Eno soon became tired of touring and his conflicts with lead singer Brian Ferry. Uh, I think I'm just going to jump around a little bit here and talk about Eno's kind of trajectory because Eno overlaps with one of my favorite bands in a way that I don't think I'd heard before until I was doing this particular round of research. His connection is with something called the Portsmouth Symphonia. Eno was a prominent member of the performance art classical orchestra, the Portsmouth Symphonia, having started with them in 1972. In 1973, he he produced the orchestra's first studio album, The Portsmouth Symphonia Plays the Popular Classics, later released in March 1974. And in 1974, he produced the album, the live album, Hallelujah, The Portsmouth Symphonia, live at the Royal Albert Hall, their infamous May 1974 concert that was released in October of that year. In addition to producing both albums, Eno performed in the orchestra on both recordings, playing the clarinet. Now, Why is this important to understand? What is the Portsmouth Symphonia? Well, it was an orchestra founded by a group of students at the Portsmouth School of Art in England in 1970, and it had an unusual entrance requirement in that the players either had to be non-musicians, which at the time Eno would have qualified as a non-musician, or if a musician, play an instrument that was entirely new to them. Among the founding members was one of their teachers, composer Gavin Bryars. The orchestra started off as a one-off, tongue-in-cheek performance art ensemble, but became a cultural phenomenon over the following ten years with concerts and albums, a film, and a hit single. They last performed publicly in 1979. I remember reading about the Portsmouth Symphonia through the biography of Deaf School and that particular band, and even reading that the the rule was that they're trying to capture music at the moment of musical awareness. So again, if you if you had never been a musician before, you were welcome in the Symphonia. Or if you were a musician, you needed to play something you could not otherwise play. And if you were caught practicing your instrument prior to taking your first shot at something like Beethoven's Fifth, you were out. Skill was not only not expected, it was not wanted and, and could actually be used as a justification for excluding. It was important that the group, at least in these early stages, as a performance art exercise, you'd be approaching the music from the very first time using an instrument for the very first time in a very new and different way. To me, this is sort of classic 
Eno, Eno at his finest. So a couple things I want to do with Brian Eno. I want to talk a little bit about the songs, but I want to do so in the context of this track-by-track exercise. But I also want to talk about his connection to other different drummers, perhaps maybe the way to start, and to talk about the band 801 and 801's leader, Phil Manzanera. From a different drummer perspective, Manzanera was the Christmas 2012 episode, particularly cited for his work as the executive producer of Christmas with the Players. Eno would have met Manzanera as part of Roxy Music, and I talked a little bit about Manzanera's role in Roxy Music during the Different Drummer segment about him. Uh, It was kind of almost the opposite between the two. Manzanera, not picked to be in the band, was an understudy, learned his lines, came in and made a huge difference for the group's entire sound. Um, Stepping in sort of unexpectedly, Eno was invited in and summarily invited himself out because he wasn't able to get along uh, as well with Brian Ferry, the lead singer and de facto leader of the group, as Manzanera was. Uh, The four or five albums that Eno and Manzanera did together, under the numeric name 801, almost all of them live recordings, are among the most interesting of the era and well worth the time to track down. I mentioned earlier that for me, the, the track that I look to most for Brian Eno is the opening track to his second studio album, Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy, and the song Burning Airlines Give You So Much More. If I look to a track-by-track listing of Eno, uh, that's what I'm going to find. Burning Airlines Give You So Much More is my number one entry. Follows that up with Music for Airports 2 slash 1, the second song on the Music for Airports CD. And to give you a sense of what makes Eno so interesting, in addition to being a producer of some of the more seminal albums by bands like U2 and Talking Heads and Devo, he also, within his own work, has released a couple of box sets Unfortunately, at this time, I only own one of them. I own the one called Vocal, which basically is the the rock and singing side of Eno. But instrumentally, Eno is perhaps more interesting and more important. This is the time of year at work, where I sometimes struggle to get consistent output made on the podcast, because it's the end of the fiscal year, and I'm doing a lot of performance evaluation type stuff, both looking out at my own work over the past 12 months, but also the work of people who work for me. And to do that, I I do best when I'm trying to make those decisions, those evaluating decisions, when I'm not sitting in absolute silence. It's also not so easy to do when I'm listening to music with lyrics. The best way to manage it is to listen to ambient music, which is the term Brian Eno used for an entire series of albums in the 70s and 80s. Music for Airports, probably the most famous of the group. Number three, Babies on Fire, uh, an early track from that very first album, Here Come the Warm Jets, a, a song that shows uh, Eno's lyrical sensibility. Babies on Fire, a song uh, perceptively dealing with spontaneous human combustion. And he's got a moment where he talks about the the uh, scientists, the experts, the doctors being brought in. And the, the experts can't agree on much, but they all agree that the baby's temperature is rising. But Eno says, any idiot can see that. Funny. Number four, Mother Whale Eyeless. Number five, King's Lead Hat. And number six, I'll Come Running. Number seven, Julie With. Number eight, the True Wheel, number nine, China, My China. So a long series there of tracks from his his vocal period, um, albums like Another Green World and Before and After Science. Then you get to number ten, you get Quartz, 
which for me would have been from the the music for films album, which I think again might be my first Eno album. Number eleven, Becalmed. Twelve, Hazard, and thirteen, everything merges with the night. Quickly beginning to leave the vocal stuff behind for good. Fourteen, Spirits Drifting. Fifteen, Task Force. Sixteen, Dear World. And track seventeen, the final track, Iced World. For me, Iced World becomes one of the more interesting. Half hour number, when you hear it, it does remind me of winter in lots of ways. How can musical tone make me think of winter? And maybe I wouldn't if I didn't know it was called Iced World. Maybe I would conjure up different mental imagery if it was called Volcanic Eruption or something else, but I don't think so. I think it's the delicate sound in the upper part of what might be the soprano register if you're trying to sing along. And the length is interesting as well, because it's as long as what we might consider to be one of Eno's ambient tracks, but at the same time, not particularly ambient. It's a much more active dancing type of an instrumental. Not dance in the sense of house music, but dance in the sense of having a great deal of motion to it, a great deal of, of a pizzicato feel in places. The Eno song that didn't make my track-by-track listing, that certainly could have, especially based on this concept of having ambient music being something that's ideal to read or write to or with playing, would be Thursday Afternoon. And Thursday Afternoon is one of the areas where it makes sense to talk about Eno as being both a performance artist and a video artist, in the sense of being perhaps even a video director. Because Thursday Afternoon, right at the onset of the CD era, One of the first CDs to come out where it was going to include songs that are more than just 30, 40, 50 minutes long. A solid 60-minute track. An album with only one song on it. And unfortunately for Thursday Afternoon, uh, not a song I like enough to replace Burning Airlines Give You So Much More from that Taking Tiger Mountain album. But it is a crucial track for me and one that I definitely use at this performance review and evaluation time of year. Because it's seamless enough that if you played it on repeat, you might have a hard time at any point guessing where you were in the song. Were you at the beginning? Were you at the end? Other tracks that I really enjoy this time of year, Iced World here, uh, The Great Wheel by James Asher is another example. It isn't necessarily that hard to know kind of where you progress through the song. There's a sense of being at the halfway point or being near the end. But Thursday afternoon is so ambient in every sense of the word, that it's not necessarily easy to tell that you're where you are when you're right in the middle of it. In what might be a meta moment, I'm going to quote Wikipedia as Wikipedia quotes the all-media guide. Eno is frequently referred to as one of popular music's most influential artists. Critic Jason Ankeny of All Music argues that Eno, quote, forever altered the ways in which music is approached, composed, performed, and perceived, and everything from punk to techno to new age bears his unmistakable influence. End quote. He has spread his techniques and theories primarily through his production. His distinctive style affected a number of projects he's been involved in, including Bowie's Berlin Trilogy, helping popularize minimalism, and the albums he produced for Talking Heads, incorporating African music and polyrhythms on Eno's advice along with Devo and other groups. Eno's first collaboration with David Burns, 1981's My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, pioneered sampling techniques that would prove to be influential in hip-hop and broke ground incorporating world music. It goes on and on. It should go on and on. Eno, 
whether in the area of instrumental music, even new age ambient music, or in actual traditional, what we might have at the time called new wave music forms, either with Roxy Music or on his own solo albums in the same period of the 1970s. Eno has been an influence to me as a listener. I know he's been an influence to others as a musician and as a producer. And I find great irony in the fact that among his first major projects was the Portsmouth Symphonia, where it became important for him to actually not have any experience playing the instruments that he would have been playing with the group. It's difficult for me to talk about Eno in some sort of a succinct way. Again, I disagree with the concept that Eno is God, but his music should not be underestimated. In the Wikipedia article talking about personal beliefs, uh, the personal life and beliefs segment, it says Brian Eno refers to himself as an evangelical atheist. If that's not an inappropriate conversations type of combination, I'm not sure what is. And if anything, maybe I'm trying to do a little bit of musical evangelism of my own, both hearkening back to how important the album was, and even the CD at its onset, as the delivery system through which most of us consumed music at the you know height of the rock and roll era, but also the way I look back on music when I'm having my moments of nostalgia. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I've talked about the website plenty today. The uh, episodes have show notes there with the ability to comment. I also can be found on Facebook. There's a page for Inappropriate Conversations, also a page on Facebook for Walk the Earth. And on Twitter, I can be found at IC underscore Greg. If you're finding this episode on Stitcher, congratulations and thank you very much. That's how I consume a fair amount of podcasts, too. And also, some hints, some audio clips of the oldest episodes of Inappropriate Conversations have been shared on SoundCloud. I'm working my way from the beginning to now. I'm closer to the beginning as far as it goes, just in the early 50s on what I've posted so far. On SoundCloud, my tracks can be found. IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening. navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. Hey, Mandy. 
Have you heard about Simply Everything? Why no, Jacob, I've not heard about Simply Everything. What is that? Simply Everything is the paid subscription service provided by Simply Syndicated. I love Simply Syndicated! Which features such great shows as Make It So and Movies You Should See, Do Ask, Do Tell, all the Federation shows like Starbase 66, Nerd Hurdles, The Masters of None. How do I sign up? Well, everything you need to know is at simplysyndicated.com slash everything. Everything? I love everything! For a mere £4.99 pence per month. Is that what it is? That's what it is. 99 pence? I don't know. I don't know how they say it. Like, £4.99. What about £4.99? £4.99, yeah. For under £5? <laughs> For under £5 of flesh. Not of flesh. That's not what they deal in in the UK? Uh, I don't think so. That's not what a pound is? It's not a pound of flesh? I think so. Everything I know about Shakespeare has led me to believe that a pound is a pound of flesh. Uh, yeah. No, that's in Venice. Oh, right. That's why we're not going to Italy Yeah. For, on vacation. Right. It's a streaming service, not unlike Netflix. Ooh. When you sign off, you can listen to everything Simply Syndicated has ever made. Whenever you want? Whenever you want. It's simply everything.